0: Welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. As the Supreme Court wraps up its trial looking into the prorogation of Parliament, we ask, are the courts overreaching? We also discuss the prevalence of mental illness amongst the homeless. And finally, Mary Killen tells us why she's no longer a Remainer. This week sees the end of an extraordinary Supreme Court trial. A former Prime Minister made a damning statement against our current Prime Minister – Meanwhile, allies of the government have questioned the impartiality of the judiciary. It's all getting a bit political. So, what should the role of the judiciary be in a democracy? And are our courts overmighty? Richard Eakins, head of the Judicial Power Project at Policy Exchange, raises these questions in this week's cover article, and he joins us down the line from Oxford. I'm also joined by Jack Simpson-Caird, a constitutional law expert from the Bingham Centre. Jack, for those listeners who might not have been following this week's events all that closely, can you give us a bit of an overview into what's been happening and what's at stake for the government?
1: Okay, so what we've seen is um, the Miller challenge um, making setting out their arguments, and essentially their argument is that the prorogation requested by the Prime Minister was unlawful because essentially it didn't take into account Parliament's constitutional role. It misunderstood Parliament's constitutional role, and as a result the prorogation should be declared by the court on law for. Then we've heard from the government that actually the court shouldn't even be looking at this question, that actually the, ma- the question of prorogation is something which is subject to convention, and in our system that means that the courts don't play a role at all.
0: Richard, you write in your cover piece this week that this is a classic example of judicial overreach. Why exactly do you say that?
2: Well, it's not overreach yet insofar as the court hasn't ruled. The Scottish Court of Sessions judgment I think was deeply problematic and I hope the Supreme Court will reverse it but the whole episode I think shows a wider trend which is a willingness to have recourse to the courts to try to secure a political advantage which you haven't yet managed through the the democratic process and the power to prorogue parliament is one that in our constitution has been traditionally subject to political controls it's the case here and elsewhere in the, the common law Westminster world and so the attempt to get a legal control on it is I think an attempt to uh, get an advantage by way of unusual unorthodox legal process.
0: And Jack, what are the likely outcomes that we're going to see? What are are the various things that might happen at the end of the trial?
2: I think
1: it's a bit of a mugged game trying to sort of predict what might happen. I think from my perspective, I'm a bit more comfortable with the role the court's playing than than Richard is. And for for one reason mainly is that I think we need some interpretive clarity of what our constitution says in this situation. I think it's right that the, the prorogation has given rise to a really difficult legal question. And the reason we have a Supreme Court is to decide those different difficult questions one way or another and I'm really hoping that whatever the judgment is either way it goes that it offers some interpretive clarity so that then parliament
2: and the government can say okay
1: well we know what to do next.
0: Richard what do you make of that argument?
2: Well I don't think it was a difficult legal question actually I think it was pretty clear that the the power to prorogue is not subject to judicial review and that was the position taken by the high court a very strong high court with the the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales and I think that judgment um, should be upheld by the Supreme Court. And I mean, to the extent there is an, uh, a lack of clarity, it's because of this litigation trying to introduce uncertainty. And I think um, if the Supreme Court can uphold the, the High Court, it'll have done a, a good service. I'm not sure it will, but um, wait will see.
0: Chat, do you think it's fair to say that our courts are becoming more political? I, I'm I'm not
2: sure that's right. I
1: think that... In a sort of constitutional situation that we're in where there's actually fundamental conflict going on between government and parliament and the normal rules don't seem to apply. I think it's, it's far from unusual that in that situation, in a constitutional democracy, that you get these questions raised in court. So I think there is a sense that the, 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 the prorogation, there was a sense of sort of p- perhaps... Richard would say, something that's politically unfair. But I think there is also a sense that it it trespasses into constitutional territory, because it does sort of challenge existing understandings of what Parliament's role is. The fact is, is that the government didn't think that they could necessarily win a motion for for a conference recess. And so they essentially circumvented a choice that Parliament would ever have to make. Now, there's a lot of people that think that that sort of circumvention isn't in keeping with our constitutional arrangements, where you need to get majority for the things that you want to do and sort of getting around a requirement for a majority feels sort of out of step with our constitution and I think there are some people of which I'm probably one who would say that part of the role of the court in this context is to look at our constitutional rules and practices and to sort of look at them in the context of what's actually going on in the constitution not just in sort of abstract to say you know We shouldn't get involved because this is a matter for politics. Actually, look at what's going on in the constitution and take a judgment based on that.
0: Richard, you also talk in your piece about how normally, in these circumstances, there'd be an election called. I assume that's because the Fixed Term Parliament Act isn't allowing it. I mean, do you think that that piece of legislation is causing quite a lot of problems here as well?
2: No, I certainly do. It's not just the legislation. We've got a very odd situation in which a majority in the House of Commons is willing to legislate to force the government to violate its central policy, but is not willing to withdraw confidence or otherwise to make an election possible. I think that is unconstitutional and the, uh, the House of Commons should, um, should change its, uh, mend its ways in that respect. But I think there is a mistake, it's a mistake with respect, to suggest that if a course of action is politically controversial, if you can accuse the government of acting in some way unconstitutionally, it follows that the courts should leap in and try to put it right. And I think think that's part of the narrative that's going on that encourages this litigation, namely that we look to the courts as the guardians of the constitution. And that's not our tradition at all. The courts have got a vital role to play in upholding the law. And if there's settled constitutional law, of course they should enforce it. But they don't have a sort of roving jurisdiction to interfere, to extend the, the reach of the law in order to make the constitution work better. Partly because how it should be working is deeply controversial. And I think it's not good for either the rule of law or for the the political constitution, for the the integrity of the democratic process, if they do intervene in that way. I, I think that's interesting, but I, I disagree, with Richard, on, on both those points. In, on, in
1: relation to the, the second point, I think that the court here, we shouldn't get the idea that the courts are somehow trying to intervene or govern or usurp Parliament's role, what they really, uh, whatever they decide, either way, I think there's a good chance that Parliament will look to legislate to regulate the power of prorogation in, in some form or another in the future, because the the, the situation that we've seen uh, has been so out of step with our, sort of how people understand the Constitution as it sh- as it should work. And in relation to Richard's point about the Commons, I think that you can put that. You can flip that on its head. Arguably, what's going on, what's strange here is that the government is willingly entering into a conflict with a majority of MPs. Normally what happens is that the government only proposes things that it knows it can get a majority for. It's not the normal course of events for a government to put forward proposals which it knows it has a majority and then neither to resign or call an election when it doesn't get its policy through.
2: Well, it did try to court an election, and the uh, the House of Commons refused. So we're in a we are in an odd position there. But partly the fact that this is a political controversy that is open to um, sort of hot uh, hot tempers on both sides is a very good reason, I think, why the courts should not be um, intervening effectively on one side of a controversy.
0: Jack, it does seem as if a lot of the people involved in pushing for this court case also don't want Brexit to happen. I mean, do you think that that is obviously a big part of all of this as well?
1: I mean, I don't think it's for me to look at the, the motives underlying. I do think that whatever what we've seen this week is that the, the disagreement over how our constitution should work is, is pretty fundamental and goes much beyond the issue of whether or not we should be a member of the EU. You've got one vision where you see the role of parliament as sort of, in a sense, sort of subservient to govern, to good government. And then another, where Parliament and the courts should play a role in, in checking and holding the government to account. And, and there is a real clash. Some people characterise this as the Whitehall view on the one hand and the Westminster view on the other. Uh, and it depends where you stand. Are you someone who thinks that Parliament is the central governing institution of our constitution or is it actually government? And I think that that's really what, what we see playing out here.
0: And just finally, what do you both think can be done to improve the situation? It's obviously got a bit difficult for everyone involved
2: Uh, well maybe i'll go first i think i mean the supreme court should uphold the the high court's judgment should make clear this is not a justiciable matter it's not a matter for the courts and leave it to the political process more generally i think we need to have our courts step away from the idea that they are there to be the guardians of the constitution they've got a vital role in relation to the rule of law but that doesn't uh, extend to that that idea shouldn't be understood as sort of a, a reason to increase judicial interference more generally There are other uh, other problems with the Constitution, or at least with the way our politics are playing out in the Constitution, but that's not a reason for the courts to somehow refashion their role in the scheme of things.
1: Well, I think that that no one would doubt that the Supreme Court is an independent court and that under our system it plays a role in in interpreting the law. Where I disagree with Richard is I think whichever way the court makes its decision, whichever decision it makes, that will not be the end of the matter. That won't be them settling the decision of, of, of the prorogation, it will be then over to Parliament to decide. So in that sense, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that the courts can play a sort of complementary role with the other elements of our constitutional system.
0: Thank you, Jack and
3: Richard. Hello, I'm Isabel
4: Hardman.
2: Hello, I'm James Versaife.
3: And I'm Katie Balls. And you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it?
0: If you live in London, you might have seen them. Rough sleepers who are clearly suffering from some form of mental illness or psychosis. These days we talk about mental health a lot, perhaps more than ever before. But are we talking about it enough when it comes to the homeless and the rough sleeping? Mary Wakefield asked the question in this week's issue, and she joins me now, together with Dominic Williamson, Executive Director of Strategy and Policy from the homeless charity St Mungo's. Mary, your column this week asked the question, have you heard the screaming in the street? Who is it exactly that you're hearing screaming?
3: Well, I mean, I'm I'm sort of probably late to notice, but um, it strikes me that we talk an awful lot about the mental health of... Uh, more fortunate people, um, anxiety in the young and stress amongst the middle classes. But there are these homeless people on the street who are quite obviously suffering from significant mental health problems. And my column is, is really asking people why we don't discuss this more. And Dominic's in a position to to tell us more about it.
0: Dominic, how prevalent is mental illness amongst the homeless?
5: So the best data that we have suggests that about four in ten of the people sleeping rough have got some sort of mental health need. And it, when you actually just look at the people from the UK, it goes up from that. So it's a it's a big proportion of people who are on the streets um, that we know about.
3: Dominic, could I just ask you, what does that signify? So a lot of people who came here looking for work are the prevalence of mental illness is not as high, right?
5: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're talking about people who are you UK citizens who, yeah. are, uh, who are sleeping in the rough, the, the proportion of that group with mental health is higher. is higher.
3: Does that suggest, I mean, I know it's very hard to say which came first, you know, the homelessness or the mental health problem, but does that, does that suggest that the mental health issue is pre-existing their rough sleeping?
5: Like, like you said, it's a complex issue. So it's definitely the case that people people's mental health is tied in with lots of other issues they might be facing. certainly once you're on the street, your mental health is very likely to deteriorate. With lots of people, the, the mental health is part of the background that may have led them to be vulnerable to homelessness in the first place. And that's particularly the case where you're talking about somebody who has also got a drug or alcohol problem. And that whole sort of mix of complex needs that people end up with. But definitely being on the streets makes all of that a lot worse.
3: Yes. I mean, talking to some people, you know, with addiction problems, it seems to me extremely easy to understand how they've got that way. Life is so complicated and the stresses are so great. I, I would defy any of us to say we wouldn't self-medicate in their situation just to feel better.
5: Yes I mean you could, I think once you start to hear the life stories of, of yeah. the people we 're talking about then it it starts to make sense so people people don't suddenly appear on the streets with a mental health problem and a drug and alcohol problem it's the it's the end result of a whole series of you know as you say in your article, when you start looking back at people where they 've had a pretty dreadful start in life, yeah, and they haven 't managed to get the sort of help that might have given them some resilience uh, along the way, then it's not surprising that that, that people end up in that situation. I guess guess one of the things I wanted to say was that there's some of the things that can help and protect people from ending up in that situation have got less available and it's more difficult to access than it, it certainly was. So we've got a, we have got a situation where some of the, the services that people may have been able to turn to in the past are not available.
3: Do you mean because of universal credit and you know accessing welfare and stuff like that, or just because of cuts to local services?
5: So that's certainly part, part of the picture that can add pressure and make things difficult. I mean, we, we published, St Mungo's published research a few months ago that showed that funding for the kind of support services that, that protect vulnerable people that are already in accommodation and sort of help people once they're moving on from homelessness, so that the money that goes through local authorities to that, those services has been cut by about a billion pounds a year over the last 10 years. So it's a really significant amount of money has come out of the kind of support services that really would protect people which is why i think you know everybody has seen an increase over the last few years of people in that sort of situation on the streets
3: i would think i was reading in st mungo's information that it's tripled over the last five years the rate of diagnosed mental illness amongst rough sleepers but that could be just a result of people better diagnosing them
5: yeah i mean I, i think there's you know homelessness and rough sleeping Itself has gone up. I think in some places we're we're able to reach people and therefore know a little bit more about them. We have got some. There is there is some good news in that the, the government have recognised that more needs to be done on this. And in the in the NHS long term plan, there was a commitment to put some specialist services in for people sleeping rough. And we've been working with the department to try and shape what that looks like. So I think one of the really important things to understand is with you know, with the right support, even though the people who are in that terrible situation you've recognised and talked about, you know, with the right sort of combination of services and support and treatment, people can be helped to get back on their feet. So it's not a you know, people are not a lost cause even when even in the situations you describe in your article, if the right sort of combination of help and treatment is there. So
3: you can, even people who are resisting diagnosis and saying there's nothing wrong with me, you know, sort of in the grip of paranoia, with the right specialist support, you can get them back into a position where they might take medication or something like that.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we we run a service in Bristol, which works in the community, where part of the service is to really start to build those trusting relationships with people who might be, even resistant to getting services and it's been very successful in in making sure that people do then access the kind of treatments which might be people might need psychological therapy there might be might there might be medicine that could help certainly people need stable housing and that's one of the kind of absolutely essential parts of the the package that people need you can't treat somebody effectively they're sleeping on the street so you need you know you need somewhere Appropriate housing to bring people into when when you do provide the rest of the package that people need.
3: We've written before about the sort of housing first program, and you guys think think that's a good idea, right? Where you you put someone in a house first and then treat their addiction simultaneously. You don't require them to be clean before they you find accommodation.
5: So yeah so housing first is a is a model which can be great for some people, and we're, we're certainly we've got some housing first services that are doing really well for people. Some people that really suits other people yeah. need really to be in a more in a, in a place where there's actually sort of twenty four hour staff and that kind of thing, so more of a sort of supported housing uh, situation so it does it does depend on the individual, but you know, certainly housing first is is one good model but the, the thing with that is you have to make sure that the 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 mental health and the drug and alcohol treatment services are tied into that I mean there's housing first pilots that are happening at the moment and it will be interesting to see how that bit of the picture is working
0: Dominic one of the points that Mary also makes is that it can be obviously quite intimidating for people who might want to help homeless people but it's dealing with someone who is schizophrenic or has mental health issues what advice do St Mungo's give to people on how to kind of how to help people who have mental health issues who are living homelessness
5: yeah I mean, the the first thing that people can do is make sure that if they see somebody sleeping rough, then they can use, uh, there's a service called Streetlink, which there's an app that you can get onto your phone or you can phone the service. Uh, And what that does is you you let Streetlink know where the person's sleeping and Streetlink service will inform the local outreach team. The outreach team will then go and try and find that person and try and start that, that process of understanding what they need and helping them get inside so that's, that's a really important message that people can use across across England. You can use a street link app to make sure that people know that somebody's there. I guess the other thing is if you see someone who is a danger to themselves or other people and you 're really worried about them then phone nine 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 we do have a health service that will come and, and and check the person's okay so and I know it's you know we we often don't know what to do, but if someone's behaving in a in a way that evidently is a danger to themselves or to other people, you know whether that person's homeless or not then we do have services that, that ought to kick in in that situation. So, you know, get, get an ambulance.
3: Yes. Although you don't necessarily want these people ending up as part of what Tom Windsor describes as the prison full of chronic mental health problems. You don't want to channel you know street homeless with mental health problems into prisons or hospitals necessarily, do you?
5: No, no. Well, there's quite a high proportion of people coming out of prison who end up homeless, sadly. It's in a way that the, the issues are very kind of connected People, particularly those on short prison sentences, that might be, their offending might be related to sort of acquisitive crime because of a drug or alcohol issue or shoplifting or those sort of offences. You know, very often that's again a symptom of that kind of complex combination of, of problems that the person's dealing with. It's really important that we have a route when people do come out of prison that they're not released and then just left to go back on the street and at the moment too many people are in that situation.
3: Yeah very good points although it, it might seem expensive all this specialist early intervention in fact at the end of the day it's going to save save money, save money, prison system money, save the NHS money. Thank you Mary and Dominic. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's vintage chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema, and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk.
0: And finally, if there's a second referendum, have enough people changed their minds that it would mean the result could be any different? Mary Killen, our Dear Mary columnist, has certainly changed her mind. In this week's issue, she writes about her journey from leave to remain to no-deal Brexiteer. She joins me now to tell us more, together with Rachel Johnson, journalist and former MEP candidate for Change UK. Mary, can you start by telling us about your journey from leave to remain to no-deal Brexiteer?
4: It was mainly about the silly laws for the farmers, which we live in the middle of a farming community, and there were things like a lamb had to have an electronic tag in its ear, which would cost more than what the farmer would get for the lamb when he sold it. Things like that. And I felt it was a bit of a gravy train, and generally suspicious of what was going on there. I thought it was, you know the expenses and everything. And then, once I was talked to by people who knew more than I did, I realised it would be a massive own goal to leave because we'd all got on so well. In fact, the EU was nominated as a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize at one stage because we hadn't had a war in Europe for so long. Plus, I wanted to carry on travelling through the Eurozone and... I realised there were many advantages which outweighed the disadvantages. However, as the months rolled on and people got more and more full of hatred towards each other and we divided into these almost sectarian groups, I thought this has got to stop and no-deal Brexit is the only option because Brussels won't move on Mrs May's deal. We can't accept it as it's worse than staying in. And... Um, we can't have a second referendum, as there'd be more tribal hatred, of the remains against the leaves. Rachel, do you have much sympathy with people who find their views shifting
0: on the issue of Brexit?
6: I have complete sympathy with everybody on this issue, because no, you know, we've got to recognise that before 2016, June hove into sight, we were all like Mary. Well, most of us were in two minds about it because both sides had good arguments and it was hard to judge between them. You know, we were given actually a very short time to pronounce on an issue of enormous importance and in a very binary way. Therefore, I don't like the anger. And I think Mary's comparison of what's happened to the country is to the troubles is a worrying one because one wonders if it's not sorted and it's not done, where will it end? And will you have leavers and remainers fighting themselves in the street and booby trapping border posts? I mean, it seems inconceivable, but you know, wars have erupted
4: over less. And also on the way here, um, a man I know who's a social figure said that... I think has
5: No, it wasn't him.
4: <laughs> he said something that made me think. He said, what people feel about Brexit is representative of how they feel about themselves. People want the option, which means change, and that offers hope. And so even if they don't know what the change could bring, they feel it must be better than what they've got at the moment. I'm sorry, but the Remainers... They like things as they are. Remainers are quite happy. Things are going well for them. Well, that's what everyone teased
6: me about when I joined Change UK, when they, everyone said, with some justification, the one
4: policy your party has is for everything to stay the same. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, it suited us, you see, but outside the M25, people were really miserable about it, you know, because they felt that they'd been yes. swamped. Yes, OK, but
6: you've raised a really important thing, which was the referendum was a solution to a non-existent problem. Yes. So therefore when you were offered a solution to your, as it were, problems, you said, Yes, I'll have the solution. If this is going to make things better, and I believe the lead side, when they say it's the easiest deal in human history, no downside, only upside, 350 million to the NHS, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. If you're a remainer, you know, you're sitting quite pretty anyway. You've benefited from mass immigration your mother's being looked after in her care home, you've had a lovely Slovakian au pair and... A second home. And a second home, and you like to which you like to travel to in Italy, then you don't want things to change. No. So I think David Cameron has a very good line in his memoirs about what actually happened with the referendum, which was something like when you address an emotional argument with a rational one, you get political chaos. So... The Leavers had an emotional argument, the Remainers had an economic rational
4: one, and the result is we are all in chaos. And we've been driven apart like we were in Northern Ireland and in Rwanda, where we suddenly think, oh, we're on that side then, and they must be the enemy, the other side. Around us in Wiltshire, there's a man who cuts down trees, and he's got a group of other men who are going to block the motorways if Brexit doesn't go through. They're so angry. But what are they angry about? What do they want? He's angry because when he goes to the doctor, he has to queue behind immigrants. That's his problem but if brexit won't address that problem because the great unspoken truth of
6: brexit is you'll get more brown immigration and less white immigration nobody has dared say
4: that yes they don't realize that they think all the immigrants will go on the 31st of october they'll wave goodbye at dover <laughs> and off they'll go they're disappointed they don't realize there'll be a similar influx coming in from the non eu countries
0: now, do you think it's socially unacceptable to
4: reveal yourself to be a Brexiteer? Well, it's becoming socially unacceptable. In fact, most dinner parties have been too recently, the host has said, no, we're not going there. No one's allowed to discuss it. <laughs> and even my hairdresser yesterday said she has banned it in the salon because she said it's like World War Three if you get two in different chairs of opposing views. She said they get so angry. <laughs> but
6: who would have ever thought that Britain which, you know, not a particularly political country. And in all the polls running up to all general elections up till about 2015, Europe polled around 12th in voter saliency. What people actually cared about, the EU never, ever turned up. And now we
4: are, we're at f- point of fisticuffs with each other. You see, I think there's something dormant in us, a savagery that can be woken up and make us hate are, are do you steps. think we want to hate? Do you think no. that this is? I think we've been, we've been tormented. <sighs> but as the etiquette expert of the mm, of the
6: Spectator, you? I mean, do you think that the Brexit? I mean, I think it's like a, a steroid on a malignancy. It's it's kind of entered the body mm. politic like a steroid, and every little miserable little niggle and gripe people had has been amplified and fed by Brexit. But you know. Therefore, what's the answer? Do you have chemo? Do, you, do we have surgery? How do we, how do we get rid we of just this
4: malignancy? Cut it off as soon as possible with a no-deal Brexit <laughs> and then no one can complain anymore.
6: But Mary, you know and I know that a no-deal Brexit means... Disaster. We don't have a trading relationship or, or legal agreements and contracts and 800 of them with the block on our doorstep. And I think it was me who said that thing about the taking the fresh egg out of the baked cake. Oh, was it? Um, yeah. Which is, no, that's no, it's why Quakes it's so movies. difficult to do it after 40 years. It's like...
4: I know, but their blood is up now, the Brexters, and they yes, really... Yes, but OK,
6: but I'm sorry, just to finish my thoughts. So that's what happens. And then what you do is you go back to the EU with your tail between your legs, with your back broken and your wing down, and you say, well, now can we start again? Three years down the line. Yes, So but you it, might as well get a deal now, get it done... I think Theresa May's deal was obviously worse than being in because everything's worse than being in in my book. So we've got to get some sort of deal in which you can just say to people, we've left, leave it at that, send them a blue passport, send them the Brexit 50p, say it's happened and life can go
0: on. (laughs) Yes, yes. What about a second referendum, Rachel, because the parties that you've been involved in Change UK and the Lib Dems are both been very pro second referendum what I mean do you think that could help solve
6: solve well, the issue permission to name drop I was talking to Tony Blair about this last week and he still thinks that a second referendum is in terms of a plebiscitary event the only way you can address Brexit because a general election is much more multifaceted multi-dimensional and if it's a single issue like Brexit it has to be sorted out in the In a referendum, as it arose in a referendum as well, there has to be some symmetry. And a general election is not the way to decide Brexit. It didn't work in 2017. It's not going to work again. I disagree with him on a referendum, a second referendum, or some people call it a third, because I just see it. I just see endless Groundhog Day with it. We just divide the country again, quite narrowly, potentially. You have leave at 48 and remain at 52, but I don't necessarily buy that. You can't change the terms of the referendum, that's the problem. You can't have a three-way referendum, I think. I think it would be really hard to get that past the Electoral Commission. An idea he had, which I have put to the powers that be, (laughs) is that that we have a general election and a referendum on the same day. Therefore, the referendum result has to be executed by the winning party. Okay? Okay. So assuming it's the Tory government led by Boris Johnson and Remain wins, well, then maybe Boris has to be prime minister of a Remain country, which to me is, is not a bad outcome for the
4: family. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. But of course, there's still Richard Dawkins' point that he, as a top intellectual, couldn't decide which way to vote. But he's a Remainer mayor. he's he's written an article saying how could I possibly know it's too much to ask me well he might have come down as remain but his original thing was that he couldn't possibly it would take too long for him to work out what was the best thing so how could the average person like me that's why it was a
6: really really
4: foolish
6: decision of David Cameron's to call a referendum Poor David And just finally,
0: Mary, I mean, you talk about, with your husband Giles, the sort of disagreements, and Rachel, I'm not going to ask you to divulge too many family secrets, but do you think one of the worst things about Brexit is the kind of divisions that it's created within, you know, Oh, yes, old friends,
4: yes, old friends. They can't be in the same room as each other. I won't say who, but lots of very good old friends now can't see each other anymore. Do you think I remember, eventually
0: they'll be on better terms? Well, I or? think if we
4: get it over and done with the... Th- there could be a thawing, like in Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, they could be... What were they called? The Chuckle Brothers. You could have Chuckle Brothers Do you again.
6: think in time, in years to come... So I've got a friend called Donovan, who's one of... His mother's Catholic and his, his father's Irish and he comes from Belfast. And it was quite unusual, you know, for Donovan to come from both sides of that former sectarian divide. I think in years to come people are going to be saying... Yes, you know, Mark, his mother was a Brexit, his mother <laughs> voted leave and his father was a Remainer and people look at Mark I'm with sure. amazement.
0: <laughs> I wonder, in, you know, in six years time, will people still think of themselves as Brexiteers and Remainers? Oh God, Do please,
4: I don't know. Please, no. I think it'll all, once it's cut off, you know, <laughs> like, a, like a terrible boil, lanced, <laughs> then people get back to their ordinary lives because everyone's fed up with it. We, are, we can definitely agree we on, on that. We can definitely
0: agree on that. Thank you, Rachel and Mary. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, why not check out our live recording of Sam Lee's Spectator Books podcast. He'll be interviewing Robert Harris, the best-selling author of Fatherland, Enigma and Pompeii, live in Westminster on the 23rd of October. The event is subscriber only, so if you want to get a ticket, just visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Harris. If you aren't a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Get a subscription on spectator.co.uk forward voucher and we'll also give you a free £20 Amazon voucher. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've talked about as well as Fraser Nelson's interview with David Cameron, Nick Robinson's diary where he wonders whether he's the next John Humphreys and plenty more. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.